when my parents were leaving, my, they were saying goodbye to me. My father said to me, you're responsible for your brother now. You need at to 11 take years old. At 11. You need to take care of him. I felt abandoned, mm. but at the same time I had a job to do. And so I focused on that. So I became a campaigner in turn. I stood on a soapbox at Hyde Park Corner. I went on marches. You know, I was part of the women's liberation movement later. What we get in our growing up has been handed down generation after generation after generation, and we haven't questioned it. I found myself homeless, sitting on my suitcase, eight and a half months pregnant, thinking, well, what do I do now? I cannot get my head around why we have to differentiate between sexes, between genders, between colours, between cultures, between behaviours. We're all human beings. My temperament, you know, is, well, nothing's impossible. It's just a matter of choice. I've been clear of my purpose for many, many years, and that has guided me beautifully, for the most part. We all want to matter in some way or another, and so we should because we need community, we need support, we need to share, we need the love, we need the kindness, we need the peace, for heaven's sake. Financial education, relationship building, dealing with limiting beliefs, managing changes. I mean, that's just a few things we could do. Failure is a gift. Failure is how we learn. Failure is an education. How do you define success? How do I define, define success? success? Okay. So success is what you say it is. And a third element of success for me is integrity. I'm on a mission to help the world to see success differently. For sharing the stories of our guests, I hope to inspire those that listen. This is the Different Hats podcast, produced by H2 Productions. Hope you can join us on this journey. Okay, I'm just going to say something about one of our sponsors, Rivervale. The world of cars, vans and minibuses is often a pain point for many of us. The hassle of finding the right vehicle, let alone looking after it, are all more things to add to our lists as busy people. Rivervale's mission is to make motoring manageable, and that's why they provide leasing, purchasing, servicing and vehicle management. So whether you have one family car or a fleet of vans for your business, Rivervale are your trusted vehicle supplier. Visit www.rivervale.co.uk. Okay, let's jump back to the podcast. Success, happiness and fulfilment. These are words that describe the key answers I'm looking for on the podcast and that's why I'm so excited to welcome this week's guest. She is a transformational coach who helps her clients remove the obstacles to success and happiness. She works with individuals and companies to transform limiting beliefs into focused, profitable action and supports individuals to grow beyond the is this it moment in their lives and find true fulfilment. With over four decades of working with individuals and teams with personal development, leadership and growth, I'm delighted to welcome the very inspirational Helen Guinness to the podcast. Helen, how are you? 
I'm really well, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so so excited to to have you on. I mean, I'm trying. I was uh, thinking, obviously, we, we met up again recently, didn't we? We, had, we a, did. had an amazing conversation in Soho House, and um, I know, like, we were put in touch through a mutual friend a, a, a few years back, and um, just the stuff that you do and listening to your story actually was just so inspiring um i was just so excited to to get you on so this is going to be amazing so thank you so much for your time and, my uh, pleasure thank you it's going to be great well look as always we're, we're going to jump straight in um and as you know we're going to kick off with our life in 60 seconds so mm-hmm. i just want you to just give us a snapshot of your your childhood and something about that that shaped who, who, who sits in front of me today Quick snapshot then, I was born and brought up abroad, lived in four different countries. So culture became very important in my life. So Mm. you could say that that was one of the lessons I learned very early on. Culture, communication, language. On the other hand, because I was born in Greece, I also experienced inequality because boys were favoured and girls were not. Mm. Now this is significant because it comes back later in my life. Mm. But that issue of inequality has been a campaign for me, whether overt or uh, covert, mm. throughout my work and all my experiences. Wow. You know, um, the other thing I learned really quickly was independence, and I can talk more about that later. Amazing, amazing. Well, look, let's um, let's delve a little bit more into that then. Great. What's that like? Growing up, four different countries, like you said, different cultures. Talk to me more about that sort of childhood experience. I guess for, from you, like so. Greece was where you was there for a long period of time, and then Greece six years. Yeah. So I was six when we left Greece. Then Croatia five years. Yeah. Then I was deposited at school in London. Um, my parents were in Nigeria, so I commuted to Nigeria. And then after that, my father was posted to the Lebanon, so I went to the Lebanon. So how old was you when you, when you come here and your parents were in Nigeria? What, how old was Eleven. you? Eleven. What's that like as an 11-year-old leaving? That was a formative moment in my life because mm. um, we were deposited. I have a younger brother. We were deposited um, with my grandmother, who frankly was useless with Mm. kids. Um, And that's significant in terms of my mother never having had a role model. Mm. So we were deposited with her. I went to a day school in London. He was sent to weekly boarding school in the country. So at that moment, the the family split apart. Mm. And that was permanent after that because my parents divorced. Mm. So it was significant in that respect retrospectively but it was more significant perhaps in the moment because when my parents were leaving they were saying goodbye to me and father said to me you're responsible for your brother now you need to take at 11 you need to take care of him because he knew my grandmother was useless so that's when growing up became really necessary and really quickly and I was thrown into a private girls school in London I'd never been to school before 350 odd pupils I mean it was traumatising quite frankly I I can imagine I didn't didn't know what had hit me however it served me immensely 
going forward because I had to be resourceful. I had to find my way. You know, I had to adapt. I had to, and I'd done adapting from one culture to another. Mm. And then coming to England was adapting again because mm. that different from uh, communist Yugoslavia as it was then. It wasn't even Croatia. Mm. Wow, well, I guess like when you look back <coughs> at that period like from uh, 11 years old, did, did you, is there an element that you feel that you missed out on your childhood a little bit in the respect of not having, I guess, your parents there with you and also that, that element of responsibility, I guess, like looking after your younger brother at 11 years old, having that, you, you can't then be a child and a, a, a usual 11-year-old child because you've got a, you've got that other responsibility. Did you, did you feel you missed out on that? Totally. Really? Yeah, no question. I mean, I was a responsible adult from the age of 11, both my brother and my grandmother, as I say. She mm. was a professional hypochondriac, so she was always ill, right. except that she wasn't. You know, she lived to a fine old age and she was as strong as a horse. But that was the game she played um, for attention, principally. But I did everything for my brother in the sense that, you know, I <clears throat> stitched his name tapes, packed his trunk, took him to school, brought him back from school, made sure he had everything he needed, visited him at weekends when he was, you know, staying at and so on and so on. Yeah. So... But I didn't question it. That was the interesting thing. It was like, okay, so this is what I have to do. So I just get on with it. And what was then? I'm interested as well. Like that, that. What was your relationship then like with with your parents when you did go back to Nigeria or you went to see them? What did you just think? Now, oh, this, like you said, this is just the norm, and that was what I had to do. Or the, when did you start to? I guess when did you start to get curious about actually? Is that right? Should I have it? I didn't question it. Really? No, I didn't question it. Um, I don't know why I didn't question it, but I didn't. Um, I thought it was a bit of a tall order. Mm. I remember feeling brokenhearted that they left. Mm. Um, Nigeria in those days was three weeks or four weeks at sea. <sighs> you know, yeah. I mean, it was a long plane ride. And in those days, there were no... Jets. This was Stratocruiser yeah. propellers, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. old-fashioned stuff. Wow. Um, so, I mean, I felt abandoned, mm. but at the same time, I had a job to do, and so I focused on that. And what, what, what period? How old would you when your parents had actually split up? What was fourteen? Looking back now at that time, how did that affect you? Because obviously, there's like you just alluded to, there's that element of abandonment already, and then they split up as well. Did that? What was your thought process then? Did it take it to a different level? Or yes, um, I blamed my mother at the time. Mm. Um, subsequently, discovered that it wasn't necessarily actually all about her, mm. um, but. It felt, as I said earlier on, at the age of 11, the family split apart and that was the end. Yeah, okay. So family didn't exist as such. But because I loved both my parents very deeply, mm. I wanted to have the best holidays that we could. I mean, I didn't question it. I didn't, I didn't mm. ask about it. I mean, thinking about it, my father 
lost his father when he was six or seven. He was very young. Mm. Um, so he had to grow up really fast. I mean, we're talking... He was born in 1904, so it gives you an idea. Mm. Um, my mother, as I say, had appalling role models. My grandmother was not the slightest bit interested in children. She was interested in her own life. She was an extraordinary woman, extraordinary. I mean, she was a suffragist. Uh, she got a, a degree in theology from Oxford. She got a first, which was never awarded to her because she was a woman. Mm. Um, she was a campaigner. She, uh, When she lived in the Lebanon, she was decorated by the Lebanese government for changing the factory laws so that children were prevented from working in factories. So she was that sort of woman. She mm. stood on a soapbox at Hyde Park Corner. Wow. So for all that she was troublesome and difficult and useless as far as mothering was concerned, she was extraordinary in other ways. And I inherited that good part of her. Really? So I became a campaigner in turn. I stood on a soapbox at Hyde Park Corner. I went on marches. You know, I was part of the women's liberation movement later in, in, in the 70s. Um, and I always thought of her, you know, I thought she she wrote a book called The Free Woman. So I kind of followed mm. in her footsteps in many ways, mm. whereas my mother was not like that at all. She was quite different. But did you have a good relationship with your mother or? So-so, um, so-so. So, yeah. so, so. Um, I, so I guess to look, look at, like you said, the, it's interesting and we're obviously delve more into your journey as it goes on, but I guess it's interesting to see that how you speak about your grandmother, but yet actually quite a quite a role model for you mm. in that sense. She was, yeah. Um, whereas, I guess your your mother not so much. In, certainly on, I guess the career path you've taken and the, and the campaigns and the things that you've sort of done. My mother was not a role model for me mm. at all. No, but then my mother, you know, she she had had to grow up really fast. I mean, she was planted with neighbours at the age of three whilst my parent, her, her parents rather went abroad for six months. Well, you know. Yeah, yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the thing that I discovered, Sam, which is so important as part of my work, is that what we get in our growing up has been handed down generation after generation after generation and we haven't questioned it mostly we don't question it sometimes we react but very often we copy and we think it's the right thing to do because that's what happened to us now when I look through my grandmother's history and realized what had happened to her and how she'd grown up that her brothers were favored for instance and they got educated and she didn't. Mm. So, you, you know, you start to see a pattern. Yeah. And then I understood why my mother was the way she was, because basically she'd been abandoned. She wasn't mm. mothered. She had to find her way. She was resourceful, my mother. She mm. was independent too. When she was in, she had to go to the United States during the war. My father was in Switzerland. They got engaged through letter writing, which the letters were censored mm. by, you know, the, um, uh, what are they, what, by the censors, yeah, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've got still got the letters a bit cut out of them, you know. Mm. Um, 
So, you know, she she had her challenges, mm. um, but she was not a great mother. No, she didn't. She didn't perform that role very well. And the one she the one thing she didn't do was to listen to me mm. from day one. And I can say, though, that she died only fairly recently at the age of 99 and a half. And we had made up his by then. So um, all is well on that Amazing. front. Amazing. <laughs> Mate, it's why I find it funny. Why I always like to start, I guess, at that and just listen to what you said about starting from people's childhoods and how that shapes their journeys and who they because it does have, like you said, it has such a those early years have such an impact on us and what direction we take. Like you said, I guess there's so much of us that we, I guess, easy is the right word. Not sure, but to to. <clears throat> the behaviours that we're taught as, a, as as children, we mimic that, and we're, it's easy to repeat what you've been brought up. So, so I'm keen to, I guess, in that next stage of your journey, what, what, how did that pan out for you? Did you then, what choices did you make to not not maybe replicate that, or is there elements that you replicated? I think I replicated my father in some respects. I mean, he was a really hard act to follow. He spoke 12 languages, he played eight musical instruments, and he wrote a symphony. Wow. You know. um, (laughs) Was something to aspire to (laughs) anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, our family were all linguists because of the living abroad. My father believed that if you live in a country, you had to speak the language, you had to learn the culture, and you had to behave according to their culture, not yours. So in that respect, I've replicated and followed him. Mm. Um, in the case of my mother, she wasn't a role model for me. Mm. I had to make my own way when it came to parenting, and I did it all back to front. So I left school at 16, um, which I regret now, but that's why, what I... Why, why do you regret that? Because I wish I'd stayed on and gone straight to university. Um, I mean, I was at a very, very good school Mm. and I was doing reasonably well. I could have gone to Oxbridge and I didn't. So what I did, though, was to get pregnant at the age of 18. And that threw up a whole load of other challenges. Now, at that time, back in those days, Mm. if you were a single parent... Your child was labelled illegitimate. Um, I had to buy a wedding ring in order to get a hospital bed. I had to lie in order to be taken care of and in order to get somewhere to live. And, you know, that's how it was in those days. Now, there's a question that you were going to pose about challenges and how did I cope with those challenges. That was a huge challenge for me. I found myself homeless, sitting on my suitcase, eight and a half months pregnant, thinking, well, what do I do now? And I remember I was holding the Richmond Trickham Times with property ads in it, you know, mm-hmm. lettings. Um, and I noticed an advertisement and realised that I was sitting opposite the house, the very house that was offering digs. Wow. So I literally crossed the road and um, rang the bell. She opened the door and I said I wanted to rent the room that she was offering. 
And then I sort of blathered about, oh, my husband's in the forces, blah, blah, blah. And she said, yeah, 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 come in, love. Wow. She had acres of children and lovers and God knows what. It was an enormous house. She couldn't have cared less. And that was my salvation, really, because I'd been chucked out of the previous digs mm. for being pregnant, even though they knew I was pregnant. Again, like, you're talking eighteen years old. Mm-hmm. You look at those eighteen years of your life, and I'll look at before I was eighteen, and and even now at forty-four, not dealt with half of those things that challenges that you faced. Like you said, even from eleven years old, I mean, to grow up, and how quick then you you've got to grow up even more when <laughs> at eighteen be, becoming a parent. Like, it's just, I guess. I guess for me, from a mindset point of view, I guess we're, that, that resilience, resourcefulness, is that just something you go, I've just got to uh, uh, fight off light? Is that where you, you are at that stage? Or is that just, is this from you looking back at that time going, well, this is just life. I've just got to get on with it. I had, really, uh, yeah, it's a bit of both, really, in the sense that I think I learnt about responsibility very, very early on. Mm. I learnt about responsibility from a negative context because I was always blamed for everything that my brother did, Mm. regardless. You know, little baby brother with the angelic blue eyes. Um, (laughs) 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 Um, I don't resent him, by the way. Um, But then the flip side of that was that you just do what's next. I'm fortunately, perhaps, I'm an optimist. I have faith that things will work out. And I'd had such a disrupted life in many ways. I was used to having to move. I was used to having to get used to new places. I was used to having to make new friends. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was used to dealing with change all the time. So this was another change, and I wasn't going to... Uh, I wasn't going to lose. I wasn't going to give the baby away, which was what everybody was trying to make me do. Mm. Um, and so I had to find a way to make it work. So I did. And that's such a what, a what a valuable lesson, I guess, for so many listeners. Uh, look, so many people running their own business, and it would be great to relate this, I guess. To that's why the stories of people's lives are, can be so relatable to what we can take away, I guess, from businesses because mm. there's so much of that where you look at it and go. I'm facing a challenge or I've just got to find a solution. That's mm. what we have to do in business. Mm. Right? There's, a, there's a problem there. I've, got to find, I've just got to find a, a, a solution. That's not, that is not an option to me. I guess you look, you relate it, I guess something like COVID, how many businesses were faced with like, do we just pack up and go home now? That, but if that's not an option, I've just got to find a solution. It's just similar, I guess, relating that to that period talking about a child now but going actually people are telling you that's one option to give it away but you've gone that's not an option for me I'm gonna Mm. I'm gonna take that oh yeah I mean I was encouraged fiercely by you know um, my doctor Mm. at the time the hospital social workers and so on Mm. but I thought no I'm not doing that Um, and in a way it was the making of me mm. in some respects because he anchored me. So I had to stay there. I had to look after the, mm. the baby. I had to get on with it. 
And um, it was around that time that I settled properly in England because mm. prior to that I'd been all over the place, mm. as you know. Um, so, you know, I lived on on what they used to call in those days national assistance for about six months. I got a state nursery place for the child and then I got a job and I worked. Mm-hmm. You know, my first job, they don't exist anymore, these companies, but there was a, a, there were companies that used to lend records. They used to post them out to people and then you'd post them back again if you didn't want them or you'd buy them. Mm. So my first job was in one of those companies dull as ditch water <laughs> and didn't stay there very long and then I got another job managing an architectural practice and this was on Richmond Green because I lived mm. in Richmond at the time and that was good that lasted for quite some time and it was there that I met my first husband so that's how life progressed mm. I'm, I mean I, I met my first husband but in the belief that no one would ever marry me because I already had a child mm. Of course, nowadays nobody thinks twice about yeah, it. Of course not. Of course not. You no, know, I would. People used to refer to me as Mrs. Thompson, as I was then, mm. which I resented deeply because I didn't like the hypocrisy. I mean, mm. it really pissed me off, yeah. and I'm <laughs> still quite intolerant of yeah. <laughs> hypocrisy. So I guess, and I'll be interested to then delve into that a little bit about the, the equality side of things. Like that, that's something obviously that as throughout your life you, like you've mentioned there's been something you're very passionate about and that you campaign for and talk to me a little bit uh, about it because I'll be keen to delve into I guess it, about the within the business world as well and once mm. you start getting into coaching and all of that aspects like tell especially back then how completely different it is to where we are now mm. but t- talk to me a little bit about that well the inequality thing started in Greece mm. I didn't experience it actually in uh, Yugoslavia, because communism is not about inequality, mm. uh, it's a different, different political state, different philosophy altogether. But my parents were um, fierce about fairness, equality, equal opportunities. My father was um, adamant when I was growing up that I should learn how to earn a living for myself and never be reliant on a man. And he made that statement quite clearly. Mm. Uh, my mother had always worked. So that was the culture that I grew up in. In addition to that, my mother was a Quaker and my father was a pacifist. So that had a, another very powerful influence. Mm. All people are equal. So war is out of the question as far as they were concerned mm. because war was about inequality. And difference, mm. and let's not get into religion at this point. Yeah. Um, how did that influence me going forward? I mean, I think the most powerful influence was I don't give a monkey's, I'm doing it anyway. I don't care, you know, about inequality. I don't care if there's a bias against women, I'm doing it anyway. Mm. And that is really how I've survived um, and I don't mean to sound dramatic because mm. it's not meant to be but that that has always been my policy um, why not why shouldn't I what's different about me you know but that, to, to, I guess 
to have that foresight at that young age as well, because like you said, again, back to your parents, and we've alluded to the fact that not great role models in certain aspects, but they're something that you've, I guess, had running through as part of your values over such over your whole life has come from, as you just alluded, has come from the, that mm. that strong fairness element that they they've mm-hmm. instilled in you from, mm-hmm. from, from from a young age which is which again is fascinating to to because people would listen maybe to the first part of the podcast and thinking like abandonment and those type of mm. elements but there are some still some such core values that they've instilled in you that that helped you definitely definitely injustice was another one mm. i hate Injustice, it upsets me, and I can feel it upsetting me now. Mm. Um, I cannot get my head around why we have to differentiate between sexes, between genders, between colours, between cultures, between behaviours. We're all human beings. We're all here to do a job. We're all here with a mission of one kind or another. I, I, I absolutely loved. It. I know we we spoke. I think I mentioned to you at So House about my. I've got twins, and my, my my son who is very gender fluid and is now identifying as a girl and um, and changed the name to Lucy. That that for me, a hundred percent agree with you. What I find really fascinating, and f- from even from my generation. I like to think I'm really liberal, open-minded. Um, I look at my parents' generation, maybe not so much, just purely on an education basis. But uh, look at your, your generation; that's quite unique. Your, your, I believe, like your viewpoint there, how you just described that. That's quite unique for like your peers, people around you of your age group and your generation maybe don't think like you maybe you? not but then they didn't have the same upbringing that I had mm. I mean I think that the kind of upbringing I had the multicultural background it can make you much more open-minded mm. it, it can make you much more inclusive mm. um, but I suppose it could also make you resentful. I mean, I, you, you know, one has to balance these things yeah, out. Yeah, My yeah. father was in the Foreign Office. We lived in an expat context. Mm. We were privileged. And I recognised that privilege. Equally, I was made to make... Made. They didn't hold a gun to my head, but, mm. you know, I, I had to make my own bed. I had to sort out my own um, clothes. I had to clean out my own bedroom, you know. So despite the privilege, I learned to be independent in every sense of the word. I was taught to cook and so on. Not by my mother, I hasten to add. (laughs) 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 Mum hated cooking. She she weren't a fan. (laughs) She hated it. Um, So... Some people say, oh, weren't you lucky? Yes, in many ways. But there's a downside to it. You don't mm. make permanent relationships because you're moving all the time. We never stayed any, anywhere mm. for longer than 18 months. Every 18 months, you know, we, we went on leave. So, <clears throat> excuse me, everything got packed up and put away. Off we went for four months or whatever it was, then back again. 
you didn't know where you were going to go next in terms of being posted. My father didn't know he was going to go to Nigeria. Uh, he thought he was coming here. And you live in that sort of temporary existence mm. with constant change. But then the upsides are that, for instance, I travelled on the Saint-Plan Orient Express in first class right across Europe in the most beautifully appointed cabins you can imagine on the train. It was so exciting when I was a kid. I guess looking at it, that whatever, whatever we look at in our lives, that there's always going to be there's good things that we take and, and negative things that we take and there's always going to be that. But mm-hmm. as a what I find fascinating, you mentioned earlier that you said uh, that you're an optimist. And when you look at that early child and that early upbringing, that to de- have developed that mindset of things are always going to be okay, things going to be all right, when you are, haven't ha- ever had necessarily stability at any st- any mm. stage in your life, I guess, mm. is, uh, even, mm. from young even moving forward. Well, did, did you feel that when you when you with your first husband, did you feel that for the first time you was in the UK and there was that stability? Did you feel that? Yeah. And was you was that something you was craving at that time or that you wanted or? I th- uh, uh, think what I craved actually was love mm. or, uh, you know, call it attention if you like, because mm. th- that had been missing for years. Mm. And as I say, I'd done my, I sort of lived my life back to front <laughs> So, um, yes, I mean, when we got married, it provided stability, um, it provided unity, it provided family life that I hadn't had since the year dot, you know, since, well, since the age of 11, I suppose. Um, All of that. But I tell you what else it did. It freed me up to start living because I didn't live as a teenager. I didn't. I didn't have those years at all. Mm. And so suddenly I had an anchor and security. So I started to live. Mm. And at that point I got a job in public relations um, in the travel trade. Now I spoke, I speak languages. So my accounts were the Yugoslav National Tourist Office <laughs> and Greek Island Holidays. <laughs> so I had the languages. Mm. I got to travel. I got to go back to those places I got to meet new people. I got to have fun. I got to discover that I had actually quite good writing skills, that I could sell coals to Newcastle. Um, you know, I discovered myself, mm-hmm. in a, but in a different dimension at this point. And it was infectious. It, it was, you know, I was just on cloud nine mm-hmm. at that time. And I was having adventures. No question I was going to have adventures. So that was a great kind of springboard for me to discover myself from a different perspective. Like, mm-hmm. who are you really? Mm-hmm. As opposed to having been a parent from the age of 11. Yeah. To all that growing up, you know, if it wasn't my brother, it was my grandmother. If it wasn't her, it was my own child. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And then... Because like, I guess there, there must have been that element of 
I guess, freedom at that point when you, it, like you said, you look at that and go, I can actually go and find out who I, mm. who I am as opposed mm. to, and ma- maybe with your husband, that's actually someone to, who's going to love me and look after me as much mm-hmm. as I've had to, because all you've done from the age of 11 is look after other people, right? Exactly, and be responsible for them. Yeah. And suddenly I had a bit of freedom. Yeah. And he was a very steady person. Um, he was an architect, worked in a practice at Oxford Circus. My office was in Bond Street. Mm. We used to meet for lunch. You know, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very straight. I was often late coming home in the evenings because there was always a launch mm. every blooming uh, night <laughs> in London. You know, one company or another was launching their new travel programme or their new cruise mm. or their new this. Of course, I went to all the parties because I hadn't been able to go when I was younger. Yeah. It wasn't available. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love, well, look, I want to tap in, I guess, a little bit with the... Y- y- I remember reading like your, your that part of public relations in that early part of your career. And then was it ni- 1981 that you attended a course? Is that right? It was it well was. remembered, yes. And, and, and I think that you said that you enjoy an experience from that put you on a on a different journey to what was it what was so special about that course that changed so um I'd, I'd always questioned in my own mind I'd always felt that there's more to this than to this to life or, yeah, yeah to to this life but there's more to people mm. there's more to be understood there's more to be discovered mm. I was quite curious um and human relationships have fascinated me and still do, as you might imagine. Yeah, of course. So what it was about it was that the way I put it is it felt like it lifted the lid off the dustbin. I was in the dustbin and I was suddenly able to look out. Mm. So I'd been in the dark and there was light and there was a whole world in front of me. And I was riveted by all the exercises that we did. It was a personal development program. Mm. So I learned more about myself. I learned about how people function. It was loosely based on psychology, but all sorts of other bits and pieces were woven in. And that was what fascinated me about it. That's what gripped me, because it illuminated my understanding. Suddenly I realised, well, oh, right, so I do this because of this, or this occurs because of that, or, you know, and so on. And so I was so inspired at the end of it that I said to myself, well, if they can do it, so can I. And I didn't have a clue how to start. In those days, coaching didn't exist in the UK. In fact, this program was a Californian import at the time. Leadership didn't exist. Even management was dodgy. (laughs) But there was no training for this. So, um, but you see, this is, what I'm about to say will illustrate what I was trying to say earlier on. So I thought, right, so how do I do this? Okay, I printed 500 leaflets. I booked the local shirt hall. I leafleted Richmond High Street, two Saturdays running. I went to the church hall on the date in question and eight people showed up. And I ran a course based on my experience of what I'd gone through on that programme. It was fabulous. And lo and behold, I thought, I can do this. 
Love that. So that that's kind of my temperament, you know, is well, nothing's impossible. It's just a matter of choice. And that, and that I guess like the amount of clients and companies and organisations you've worked with, I guess, over the over the many years. Giving people that belief that nothing's impossible. Yeah. It's such a powerful tool. But to be able to deliver that mm-hmm. based on... Because we've just listened to a, a snapshot of the early years of your life, right? And how many people will go, you know, I'm not... <laughs> I've not been through, <laughs> I'm at whatever age, I mean, I'm sitting here at 44 going, oh, I've not experienced any <laughs> of those challenges or things that we've faced. And yet, that's got to be, that's why I find it so inspirational, that's what's got to be so inspirational to clients and people that you work with, that actually from your lived experiences, you're able to go, it can, it can be done. It can be done, exactly, it can be done. It's a matter of choice. And here's the thing. When I say nothing's impossible, nothing's impossible. Mm. However, it depends on what you choose. Mm. You don't have to climb Everest. You don't have to go to the moon. Mm. It's a question of what do you want to achieve and then make mm. that possible. Mm. But there are all sorts of ways and means of doing that and ways of thinking about it and ways of approaching it that are going to help you to do that, which we don't necessarily think about. Mm. Often when people think about the future, they stand in the present and they look forward. Mm. And it gets to a point, it gets a bit misty, frankly, mm. beyond maybe six months, shall we say. Mm. Well, if you're trying to do a five-year business plan, if it's misty after six months, it's going to help you, is it? <laughs> so I teach people to stand in the future, stand in the place, imagine the result that you want to have produced and have produced. Stand in that place, absorb it, think it, be it. Now, what was the, the last thing you did that got you that result? Put that milestone in, then go back a bit more. What was the penultimate thing you did? And so on and so on until you take yourself to the present. So if you stand in the future and look back, which, by the way, is what Kennedy did. Um, I'll say about, sorry about that in a minute. But if you do that, rather than standing in the present, looking forward, then so much more is possible because it's such a much, much bigger opportunity yeah. and possibility that you're creating. It's almost like... Like visualize because I've spoke to like uh, you know I've had Sally Gano on like Olympic champion and and people like that and so much of that the, the, they talk about visualization and even some business owners who have come on and sold for multi millions that that, that, is, that visualization is such an important part. How many personal development, self help books, and business books are so much allude to that mm-hmm. to that thing, but. It is sometimes, I guess, I'm speaking for myself on occasion, I'm speaking for other business owners sometimes, that actually when you're in some shit places, and it's, it's sometimes harder to to see that, that vision. It, it is harder to see the vision, but when you're in a shit place, you're actually governed by the voice in your head. 
you're governed by the limiting beliefs that you're experiencing in that moment because you're actually creating the shit in your head. Mm. And I, I don't want to make this sound flippant because it isn't. Mm. It's really important stuff. But we limit ourselves so, so much. And the biggest obstacle in anyone's life or any company is the voice in the head, is the, the limiting beliefs, it's the limiting mindsets. So limiting mindsets are an absolute devil because of the way that we are and because of the survival mechanisms that we create. We want to be right about our limiting mindset. So to give you an example, a very, very um, frequent one for people is I'm not good enough. Mm. Right. So if you believe that you're not good enough and you have to be right about it, you're not going to allow yourself ever to quite reach the mark. You're going to fall short of that in order to be right about it and keep in your comfort zone. Now, for anyone to say that they're not good enough is a lie. But it's the lie they inherited from the previous generation's feedback. Because 80% of the feedback we're receiving growing up is negative. And it's also somebody else's perception. It's somebody else's view of the world or view of you or opinion of you. It's not yours. And so we find our way through. And, you know, that, that then takes us to limiting beliefs and decisions about the sort of person that we are. Now, a decision murders the alternative. People get married on the basis of, of a decision in the face of evidence that would seem to indicate that it's not a good <laughs> idea. Um, and that's why I'm so emphatic about choice, because choice gives you freedom. Now, you can choose to think whatever you want. But when we get into a ship place, and I had one last week, mm. you know, my laptop was driving me insane. Um, and I live and die by my laptop, you know. And my limiting beliefs started to act up. And then I have to talk to the parrot and say, hang on a minute. You know that there is an answer to this. You know that this can be resolved because you've done it before. Mm. So enough of that. Let's get on with sorting it out. But it's, that's what happens to us. You know, we, we, we wind ourselves into a vortex of limiting beliefs sometimes. And you can be an optimist. You, you can be highly, highly successful. Mm. You can be the man on the moon. We all have them. So much to take away from that for me. Like, I'm, the big one is the, is the choice. It's that, because you're, you're absolutely right, there's that when you are in that shit place, you, that, that voice becomes a bit louder, doesn't it? That limiting belief of voice course. comes a lot louder. Because when, when things are going well and you're thriving, yeah. you can't even hear the voice. Yeah. But, but when actually you get into a dark place, that voice then becomes really loud and really prominent. But I guess it's taking that moment to, to have a word with yourself, as you mentioned, and go, I've got, I've got a choice here. I won't listen to that. This is, and is that is that where the visualization part becomes stronger? Where you're in that point and you've got to make a choice, and you go, "What am I doing this for? Where am I going? This is this is my 
this is what I want to get to and I need to work back or not yes and no okay. so uh, first of all I think it's it's really important for people to understand that it is a hundred times easier to manage the voice in your head if you animate it <clears throat> what I mean by that is I have a parrot mm. who sits on my left shoulder and he is the critical parrot or she it doesn't really matter mm. um so when that critical voice gets louder and starts to interfere, I talk to the parrot. And it's ten times easier to manage that than when it's in your head and it has control of you. Yeah. So talking to yourself can actually be a really frustrating experience. But if you're talking, this is your visualisation, if you're mm. talking to the parrot... You could say to the parrot, thanks for sharing, but I'm not going down, the ro down that mm. road today. I'm choosing to think something else or do something else or believe something else. Mm. It's important to acknowledge that you have the voice because you, you can never annihilate it. Mm, yeah, yeah. But it, over the years, as you manage it, it weakens and weakens and it becomes less important and sometimes even a joke. Mm. Oh, did I really think that? You know. <laughs> So the visualisation of the parrot or whatever, I mean, I've done a lot of work with clergy and they always have angels and devils. Mm. So yeah, <laughs> visualising yeah, yeah, yeah. your devil and interacting with the devil can really help because you're removing it. Mm. You're giving it perspective and distance. And that makes a big difference. Um, as far as any other visualisation is concerned... You said something really important because you said, um, is that the time when you st think about where am I going, what am I doing, what's my purpose? Now, I'm very keen on purpose. Mm. I've been clear of my purpose for many, many years. And that has guided me beautifully, for the most part, um, because I've got an end goal. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm up to. And so I know what isn't going to fit in there and what is going to fit in there. So my purpose, for what it's worth, is to challenge assumptions in order to support and encourage people and organisations to find their own integrity. And when I talk about integrity, I talk about wholeness. So that every part of you is aligned with every other part of you equal in an organisation, you need to have an alignment of holes for the organisation to successfully move forward as one toward the vision, mission, purpose. But if we don't have purpose, if we don't have a sense of where we're going, then it, all sorts of mm. things can occur, mm. um, as I'm sure you're aware. Mm. And today, I'll just say this quickly, post-COVID, many, many, many people have lost their sense of purpose and they lost their sense of identity. There are an awful lot of lost and unhappy people at the moment who are desperately looking for direction. The majority of requests I get are for that. The same applies to organisations, of course. But how, I guess... 
finding your purpose, mm. is it something that we, I guess we have to, should it be something we have to search for? <laughs> like, what, what, how do we, what, how do you help people, I guess, navigate what, because it is our purpose, is it within us already? And it's just, how do we find that within us? So, it's about allowing yourself to dream and to connect with something that you have some enthusiasm for, if not passion for. Um, yesterday, I spent two and a half hours with a client helping her to identify her purpose. So I, I do that piece of work as a kind of workshop. And she had some notions of what she wanted to do, mm. but she didn't have any clarity on that. So by taking her through a process, we were able to identify, as near as damn it, what it is that she does want to do, mm. and she had been holding back. And she suddenly realized that it was something she wanted to do in childhood and had never fulfilled. And that connection is actually really interesting because as children, we dream. As we grow up, we're not allowed to dream. Mm. It kind of gets drummed out of us at school. It's all about passing exams and being qualified and being good enough. Mm. So the dreaming kind of gets put to one side. And that piece is really important in terms of reconnecting with, or indeed connecting for the first time, with your purpose of what it is that you are really interested in, passionate about, want mm. to achieve. That's one part of it. The other part of it is that human beings on the whole want to make a difference. You know, who wants to have he didn't matter on their tombstone? Mm. We all want to matter in some way or another. And so we should because we need community. We need support. We need to share. We need the love. We need the kindness. We need the peace, for heaven's sake. Um. In Japanese philosophy, your purpose, your ikigai, mm. is not valid unless what you do contributes in some way towards the community or your tribe or the culture or the government. Or, but anyway, to the greater, the greater good in some form or another. Mm. I love. I, I'm I'm such a big fan of ikigai. I know of. I've talked about it on here quite a few times actually and it is it's such a such a brilliant philosophy isn't it and, mm. um, I guess many people would have, would have heard of it but it is I guess it's that for me so much of that purpose and, or your dream what, what I find fascinating about what you just said is about the dream inside of it actually we do as kids we're encouraged to I talk to my dream big Dream me some, dream me a million dreams tonight. I tell them, dream, dream, dream big, and that's, and I, I get that, and I think, and it is a shame when we get older, we come adults that that just mm. stops developing. My wife will probably tell you I'm still a dreamer, and I, I think I always will be, but and I try and hold on to that, and it's difficult sometimes. Society doesn't necessarily allow us to hold on to our dreams because there's that pressure of, well, you've got your bills to pay and you've got this to do and you, you know and you should be at this stage by now and mm -hmm. at 44 I should have you know done x y and z and I should be in a stronger position financially or whatever because mm -hmm. we're it's still so measured by that financial status mm -hmm. isn't it that's where I find that's why 
I find things so, I guess, torn. I'm so torn in a lot of aspects because I do dream and I do believe in where I'm going and what I'm doing. And then when that, if that financial stability doesn't come with it, then I'm not seen as successful in other people's eyes or society's eyes, maybe. Um, and there's trying to get that balance right between I believe in this and I believe in this dream and that this side will just take care of itself at some point. Mm-hmm. But how do you strike that balance? How do you do you hold on to that when you're robbing Peter to pay Paul and you're really struggling and you're like, oh, I need to get that money in and up and you're trying to get, you still got to hold on to that dream. Okay. So some of it... So you can tell from the podcast, this becomes very cathartic for me. <laughs> it's <laughs> Sorry. Free, free coaching. <laughs> yeah, I feel this whole subject is so fascinating. So part of what you were talking about is you being bothered about what other people think. Mm. Mm. It doesn't matter what other people think. External validation, yeah. So... I don't know whether you've been a people pleaser in your history, but if that is the case, you will be worried about what other people think. Mm. And that will then influence and hold you back from your dream. Because Mm. it's energy that you're putting in a place that isn't actually focusing on what you want to achieve. Interesting. I mean, you know... Value is only value if we say so. Success is success if we say so. Mm. Uh, I you, you, I think you're going to ask me how I um, identify or explain yeah, success. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but you can be a successful pauper and you mm. can be a successful millionaire. You can equally be a very unsuccessful millionaire. Mm. Uh, it... it it's it's what you say. It's it's up to you. It's you how you define how you, you define, define it. You define it however you want to define it. Yeah. Um, I'll come back to Kennedy, who was a dreamer, mm. and he declared he'd have a man on the moon and safely back within a decade. The whole of NASA resigned because they said it's impossible. And he said, "Right, all of you, come back now. Let's have a chat about this impossible thing." And why is it impossible? What is it that you need or, mm. or, or want in order to make this possible? That is then how it occurred, mm. because they addressed the impossible. And so the impossible became possible. Because someone had a dream. Because someone had a dream and was not going to be thwarted. And he had the intelligence, the wisdom to realise that precisely the piece that was impossible was the piece that was going to educate them Mm. and solve the problem. When I say educate, I mean loosely speaking. But that was where he was going to find the solution. There was a time when people said you can't, you know, you'd never climb Everest. It's impossible. Well, clearly, we know (laughs) that's not more than achievable. Yeah, yeah, more than achievable and overly so Um, nowadays it's becoming destroyed I think (laughs) as a result so um, when somebody says it's impossible that doesn't close the door maybe that opens the door 
just got to, just got to look at that dream in a different way or or still hold on to that if you've got I guess what's so I guess so fascinating is that holding on to that dream and believe because if you believe in it wholeheartedly then of course you can achieve it but got to, you've got to know what that dream is right? you've well, you why you're need doing to have that. some sense of what yeah, it is yeah, you want yeah, to achieve yeah, yeah. otherwise there isn't an end goal yeah. um, you know people have said to me oh, I want to be a millionaire uh, right how are you defining that you want to earn a million and that's the end yeah. it's not clearly mm-hmm. there's more than that but why do you want to do that mm-hmm. oh then I'll have freedom and what are you going to do with the freedom and so on and so on and so on. Because you still need purpose. You still need purpose, you know. That's what I find, especially, and that's why I always talk about the money side of things, because I do think that the people I've spoke to on here, the multi-millionaires who've got their... That, that you, there's no euphoria moment, no matter how much zeros you've got in your bank. If you haven't got a purpose, there's what? what's the what's point the in point? life? Yeah, 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 what's yeah, the yeah. point? Right. Yeah. Mm. Oh, so fascinating. Look, I want to. I do want to go back to the. We, you sort of alluded to a couple of challenges along the way, mm. and I do want to. I do want to interject here with, um, with our lo- another life in sixty seconds, where we talk about yeah. a challenge and, and one of the, and the things that I guess that you've learned from that. Um, and just to, look, we've given had a snapshot. I said of your of your life, and in a short period, that early part, how many challenges you faced. But if you could. Pick out, I guess, one that you could share with us. What would that be, and what what did you learn from that? Well, I can give I can give you one. Let's see how we go with this. So, um, before I set up my company and my business, uh, I got a job teaching at Winchester Prison, and I was asked to teach life skills, drama, uh, French conversation, and <clears throat> current affairs, interesting mm. combination of things. They didn't tell me what life skills meant. So I chose to teach them what I'd learnt from that course mm. in 1981. So, so I'm taken into the room on the first day and you can't take anything with you. You have to leave everything in a locker. Mm. I was told I had to, to call them by their numbers. I was never going to learn all the numbers, was I? I was told that I had to keep my distance from them, and so on and so forth. So massive security. And as I sat down at the the teacher's desk at the top end of the room, the uh, uh, officer who'd brought me in pointed out that the emergency bell was by the door at the other end of the room. Mm. I thought, well, that's good. (laughs) I'm never going to get there (laughs) if anything goes wrong. (laughs) And then all these men filed in and sat down and looked at me and waited. I thought, right, here we go. I haven't a clue whether this is going to work. So I said, today we're going to talk about trust. They all fell off their chairs laughing. You don't think we trust anyone, do you? And I said, well, maybe you don't. But let's explore the subject. Now, at that moment, I could have crumbled. I could have just thought, okay, clearly I have no clue what I'm doing here. I'm in the wrong place. This is all wrong. But I stuck it out. And gradually, 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 I managed to get them to tell me their stories with regard to trust. 
and we started to build a picture and we started to gain momentum. We started together to realize that trust is something that is a commitment to the future. It's in the future. It's not necessarily now. We've all been let down in the past. So trust is something you invest in someone or something mm. in the future. And slowly, slowly, a transformation began to occur. And once I'd gained their trust, and I, I would say because I showed my vulnerability, mm. essentially, then we were off and a whole new opportunity opened up. And we did all sorts of amazing things. We did trust exercises. We did um, um, combinations of different mm. models. We talked about self-fulfilling prophecies. We talked about limiting mindsets. We talked about, and so on and so on and so on. And when it came to the drama class, I didn't know what I was going to ask them to, what play I was going to ask them to do. And then I just had this brainwave. There's a, there's a morality play called Every Man, which is about an hour and a half long. Mm. It's a bit like Pilgrim's Progress. So I read it to them. And they loved it, absolutely loved it. But they said, but can we rewrite it in our own prison language? So I'm sure, off you go. Mm. Thinking to myself, I wonder whether this is actually going to work. By the time I got back the following week, they'd done it. So they owned it. Suddenly it was theirs. And it was their production. And it was a smash hit. Wow. The whole prison saw it. And, it, it was, I mean, it was just incredible what, mm. what it was possible to achieve. I suppose the challenge that I'm referring to was that moment when I could actually have walked out of that classroom in despair mm. and failure mm. because I would have said to myself, you weren't good enough, clearly, you've no idea. And I just stuck it out. So many things. Are, so one, I want the, the vulnerability piece, sitting in front of someone, being vulnerable. Mm. Is how we can build true connection, right? That, that, that for me is, if there's one thing I guess I've learned from doing the podcast as much, and, and especially since, I guess, the last couple of years, two or three years since lockdown, that people have been being a little bit more open, being a little bit more honest about things as opposed to, yeah, yeah everything's fine, yeah, yeah, I'm smashing it, or we're, we're doing all right, but actually, because it's that narrative out there that vulnerability is weakness, where actually it's a real sign of strength and where we build true connection. Like, it's a part of our, part of County Business Clubs, we do our top table events and we sit around and have conversations because there's only 10 people, I get 10 partners together. But a lot of them quite insightful questions similar to the stuff I ask on here, but actually when people really open up and share their vulnerability, as people have done on the podcast, for me connection and inspiration all of them things come from fun like listening to you talk about that challenge specifically and it's interesting that you went I know like we said we delved into a couple of others but really interesting you went on that one and what got you out of that point was the thing of well, I'm not just going to walk away I'm going to find the solution back to your whole thing of what yeah. you've done over your life mm. that you go I'm going to find a solution 
And what the solution was, was you showing a bit of vulnerability to allowing them to then open up, because that's where that trust element come in then, right? Yeah, absolutely. And they were told they couldn't ask me any questions about me. Yeah. I said, no, you can ask me anything you like. Wow. Because I, my policy is I have nothing to hide. Mm. If I don't want to answer, I won't. Mm. But basically, I have nothing to hide. So they asked me questions about me because they thought I was a posh lady from, you know, Petersfield. <laughs> Um, which in some respects, of course, you could say was accurate. But they wanted to know whether what sort of experiences I'd had, you know, had had I ever had traumatic experiences. They wanted to know whether I'd ever been attacked. They wanted to know all sorts of things. I just answered their questions. But that created relationship. So if you like, that's vulnerability. Because if I try and hide... I create a barrier between them and me. And they always know, people always know if you're hiding something because it kind of leaks out around the sides. Mm. That's what I mean by integrity, you see. Yeah. And so we built a relationship. Now, going forward to some of your other questions, relationship is the foundation of accomplishment. How have I been successful? in many of the jobs that I've done and many of the clients I've worked with by building relationship. When I was sent to Russia on the pipeline, I didn't do anything for the first month at all except chat to people over a cup of tea or coffee. I built relationships. I mean, the first month I was there, they followed me everywhere. They thought I was a spy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. And so what's that like going into somewhere like that? I guess as a woman as well and being in that environment and having to go in and change because you're going there to change cultures and behaviours, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what's that like? <laughs> talk, talk to me about that experience going into that. It's challenging. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how I got the job was I was working for a company in, in London at the time and the company was a bit, uh, low on income, shall we say, mm. they were struggling a wee bit. But we'd had this offer of this huge contract in Russia. And my boss at the time said, um, trouble is no one wants to go. And don't ask me where it came from. I said, I'll go. I'm a bit of a nettle grasper. Mm. But I thought, Russia, leadership, safety, I'm up for it. And I didn't, honestly, I was nervous as hell. I didn't have a clue. I was flying out there on my own. I had to transit in Moscow and so on and so forth. And I ended up um, being picked up at the airport in southwest Russia from a, a town called Krasnodar and taken to, I knew not what. They could have taken me out into the wilderness and shot me for all I knew. But you have to trust and it's going to be okay. So I was taken to um, one of the stations, one of the sites, the construction sites. They were building pumping stations all along the pipeline to increase production. And I met these people who I was going to work with. This was my safety team. And I thought, okay. And they all looked at me very suspiciously. Nobody smiled. There was no, you know, it was all very standoffish. Um, I thought, right, I'm just going to chat for the next month. I'm not going to do any of the work I'm supposed to do. I'll just chat and we'll go for walks and we'll go on the side. But you're locked in for the time you're there. 
you can't leave the site. You know, it... Anyway, my team, diamonds, absolute diamonds. We built a fabulous relationship. We trusted each other. They loved working with me. I adored working with them. And we won prizes. Wow. It was magic. Because so much, so much in life, for, and business especially, it, as you just mentioned, it, based on relationships and the relationships we build. And actually, we will go on to it later when we talk about success. But for, for me, one of my defining definitions, I guess, of success is is that that it's actually the relationships we build and the connections we make mm-hmm. over our life. Actually, if we measured success on that basis instead of that financial status, you know what? I'm doing all right. <laughs> and 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 and, and and that 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 for me, I remember I've talked about it a few times. That that got me through quite a tough time when I was in my full. I remember thinking, oh, I'm not that millionaire I thought I was going to be. But what what I did know is I've experienced loving all these forms because of the amount of relationships I had, whether that be my parents, my brother, my my friends who I grew up with, the business community, my beautiful wife, my kids, whatever that was. I was like. Look at where I am. I've experienced love mm. in all these forms, and then, and if if I died tomorrow, my my measurement of success based on that would be oh, he's done all right. And that I listen to you talk about that and how you go in, and so much of that can be related into the business world that you go. God, just build that relationship. But to go into to what you did at that point, to that environment, and just go and recognise that straight away, because that's I guess that skill set of yours is was that developed over such a long period of time because of again we'll go back to your upbringing and the different changes that you had to go through different cultures having to fit in and learn how to build relationships in different forms that must what what a life skill absolutely definitely related to all of that Mm. including um that i'd lived in a communist country Mm. that helped now russia isn't communist anymore Mm. and certainly and it wasn't then but um, just going to a country that was communist mm. and, you know, it had that hangover. Because I had been to Moscow mm. uh, a couple of times before. I ran a marathon in Moscow, as it happens, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway, so I had the, the background of getting used to different cultures, working in different cultures or living in different cultures. The language, I spoke Croatian. Mm. Russian is almost identical. So that was a huge advantage. Mm. It was one of the reasons they sent me out there, for mm. sure. I wanted adventure. Um, I trusted that it would work out. This can be done. Mm. And it was a huge challenge because the attitude to safety in Russia is what you might call karmic. Mm. You know, God will fetch me when he's ready kind of attitude. Yeah. And in the meantime... I've got to produce as much as I possibly can to get paid as much money as I possibly can. But it doesn't matter whether I do it safely or not. And it's the managers, just as much as the workers, Mm. if I may put it that way, because they're looking for shortcuts in order to speed up production in order to get paid their bonuses. Mm. Well, safety goes out the window. But once they'd cottoned on 
to the fact that actually if they worked safely, they would be quicker. Then it started to shift. The culture started to shift. But my goodness, it took some doing, you know. Talk to me more about culture and some of the other, I guess some of it, like, well, even with this point and li- looking at some of the other, co- you've worked with Pepsi and other la- other organisations that you've worked with over the over the years. And I guess, because the cu- culture is the bloodline of any mm-hmm. company, yeah? And if you had to, I guess for, for people listening and people running businesses, give me a couple of key, I guess a couple of really key things that you would talk to them about. How they they build a strong culture? Leadership has to be, has to be. Now, a company like Pepsi had a long, 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 long history, right? Mm. And some of the traditions and limiting beliefs and whatever's Mm. will have been handed down. So you've you've got, sometimes you've got history to deal with, um, more often than not. But essentially that history is created by leadership. So... It is the leaders in any organisation who create the culture. And if leadership is autocratic, you will have a particular culture. If Mm. leadership is democratic, you will have a different kind of culture. Um, If leadership is dictatorial, it will produce certain behaviours, and so on and so forth. So it is down to leadership. Now... But can you you ever... Can you ever... With those through three or four different styles you just mentioned there, can can you still have a really good culture under all of those leadership tools? Or Depends what you define a good culture. I mean, with the greatest respect to you, mm. what does good mean? Yeah. So it's it's is it effective? Is it achieving results? And are we looking after our people? Because you can have the dictatorial organisation and achieve enormous results, but people will be, you know, dropping off their perches mm. all the time, burnt out, miserable. Um, so it it does depend on the leadership. Mm. And it's down to the leadership as to what they want to create in terms of a successful, caring organisation. Organisations need to care. Mm. They're not just about the money. Because who produces the money in an organisation? The people. <clears throat> if your people aren't happy... Mm-hmm. Do, do you, have you seen... Because like, you, you see a lot on social media and stuff now and you talk to people on it, and more so that cultures within companies have changed a lot more, that they are more purpose-driven now with sustainability, that side of it, but certainly the people side of it companies have got to be so much more aware of that now mm-hmm. it whether whether covid moved that forward slightly in the mm-hmm. sense that actually people are looking at their positions and going or oh, i don't need to work there they're not looking after me i can go and work because we can work remote and you can work. this is what i need and the, the employees have got more of a i want to buy into i want to buy into that culture mm-hmm. i want to buy into that before they look at that pay packet mm-hmm. now is if you, if you would you say that's been quite a big shift over the last couple of years? Have you I would say that, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it was compounded by COVID to some extent mm. because people felt lost. Mm. I mean, the, when people were working from home, they were disconnected from mm. the whole 
So there was a loss of relationship, there was a loss of, of trust, there was a loss of information, there was a loss of team spirit. I mean, you, I could go on. Yeah. A loss of leadership, by the way. Um, and that has had a, a very um, uh, significant effect. So going forward, people want to feel that they belong. They want to feel that what they do in an organization means something that it has, they have a place in the organization, that their work is connected to other people's work. Mm. In other words, you get an alignment of holes, essentially. Mm. But it's, it's that feeling of, I am part of this, this is where I belong, um, and I am buying into that vision. I mean, one thing that can often happen is that people will go and get a job but they haven't bought into the vision or mission of the organization. Mm. Well, I say, unless you can do that, don't work for that company. Mm. Because A, you're going to be miserable, and B, it, it is overall, it's an element of hypocrisy yeah. about it. Um, but belonging, identity, purpose, absolutely key right now. Yeah. And organizations really need to be thinking about it. The other thing that organizations tend not to do is deal with limiting beliefs. Every organization has limiting beliefs. We are this type of organization. We don't do that in this company. This is how we operate here. Those are limiting beliefs. Yeah. I guess how do you... I guess people have got to want to change, right? If you go into an organization, they've got to want to... I guess one getting you in the first place is an element of going. We're looking for a change. We need yeah. some help. So yeah. actually, that's a good starting point. Sure. But that leadership team working with that leadership team to be able to get them to go. We've got to actually these are the behaviours at the moment, and we've got to change those behaviours. Mm -hmm. And getting people to believe in that is, mm. a, is a challenge. No. If you go about your business saying we've got to change those behaviours it's not going to work mm. it needs to come from them yeah. what do they want what's going to work for them mm. the people you who work with you and for you need to be enrolled mm. you need to build relationships with them yes. you need to enrol them you need to inspire them to want to change mm. otherwise what's the point you know, we're all very fond of our comfort zones mm. and we're very happy to stay in them unless we can see a really good reason not to mm. or unless we are so motivated internally mm. that we see that change is going to be necessary in order for us to fulfil our purpose, let's say, mm. or even, you know, buy the week's shopping. Mm. Um, but you, you can't, if you come, if you come at it from we've got to do it, or we should do it. That's like a parental voiceover. It needs to come from, what do they want? See, there are three brilliant questions that I use all the time. Tell me what's working. Tell me what's not working. Tell me what's missing. Those three questions will bring you gold. And if you can talk to your people along those lines, what you're doing is you're building trust. They matter because you're asking for their opinions. Mm. 
you're involving them in the future of the organization. You're giving them voice. You're building relationship. You're asking them to contribute to the future of the organization. It's a whole different way of being. The best boss I ever had was a man who was extremely successful, multimillionaire, ran a company, which I think was family family company. But what he used to do, it was a production company. When he was stuck with an idea, or even if he wasn't, he would go down to the assembly lines to the factory Mm. and he would pick a line that wasn't too busy at the time and he would interact with the person running that line and say, have you got a couple of minutes? Have a chat. Um, And he'd say, look, I've got this problem that I've been trying to solve. I would really appreciate your view. Would you mind if we just have a chat about it? Well, how do you think that person felt? Yeah, Yeah, I love that. I love that. They adored him. Because you're getting everyone then on that journey with you. Yes. Right? As, as, as that, like you said, it's a shared vision and it's a shared mission. That exactly. We're all, whether it's Kennedy getting to the moon, whatever that looks exactly. like, let's all, let's all get behind this because this, this is our destination, this is what we're yeah. getting to and this is where... But there's, you know, there's an easy way of measuring this. If you think you're leading and no one's following, you're not leading. Mm. It's as simple as that. Yeah. You're doing something else, but you're not leading. Fascinating. And I get and leadership is, is I mean, I, I get really wound up about it because mm. still it's confused with management. Yeah. I pioneered leadership in my company in 1989 and coaching. Still, people don't understand what leadership is. It's not complicated. Yeah. It's truly not. And why is everyone so afraid of stepping into leadership? Yeah. Because you can you can be whatever the hierarchy of your organisation is, you can be a leader if you're if you've got the CEO and then the next level then whatever that looks like, and then someone here can be a leader, right? Absolutely, leadership exists at all levels in yeah. every organisation. Yeah. You don't have to be designated yeah. a leader yeah. to be a leader, and as you know, I'm sure that Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, she said that never underestimate the power of a small, committed group of people who want to change the world. Nothing else ever has. It's the small, committed group who Mm. demonstrate leadership. And they can be anywhere, anytime. Mm. I mean, in 1981, we talked about transformation for me, I joined an organisation called The Hunger Project. It's an international charity Mm. whose mission is to end hunger. But the the means um, of doing it is by um, um, providing training courses in leadership at grassroots, particularly for women. Mm. Now, there are women leaders who have grown out of our programmes who are now in the government in India, for instance, when it... Mm wouldn't have been possible a long time ago. There are women in Ghana who established the Women's Bank of Ghana through our programs. So leadership can exist anywhere, anytime. It's a matter of having taking a stand and having that commitment and then bringing people with you.
Well, well I, f- I, f- I find, again, back to you and, uh, and your journey, and I guess how visionary you've been for such a long period of your life. Like, even as we talked to right at the beginning when we're talking a- a- about gender equality mm. and and just that we're all humans or cultural quality, whatever it looks like, we're, we're all just human. But like, again, your mindset around that. You move on to then, we're talking now about leadership and uh, your work, work with organisations. We're going back to the 80s where this form of leadership, I guess, just wasn't... <laughs> wasn't seen right wasn't heard of so you, you're coming in and just everyone talks about it now we're talking about it now like, and it's quite the norm that people got to look after you, your people and etc cetera, etc cetera. that wasn't a thing back then wherever you're it's so fascinating for me to listen to and I'm sure many of the listeners will but to listen to your journey and have, have your mind set works and back to again your upbringing and where you all of what you've been through and yet your mindset to get to that point and look at the world differently to how other people have done mm. it's pretty incredible thank you now back in the 80s it was all management and think of the language manager senior manager managing director mm. it's all management 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 mm. we still haven't unstuck ourselves from that leadership seems to be associated with Fear. Mm. I don't want to put my head above the parapet. I don't be the one. I don't want to be the one in the limelight. And yet, you know, think through history. All the great leaders that we have had, whether they've been for the good or the bad, mm. but leadership has certain properties, if you will, mm. certain skills, certain behaviours attached to it. Mm. It's about inspiring others to follow. Yeah. Now you can beat them into submission or you can uplift them and inspire them to bring all their skills and gifts to the party so I want to touch on something there that you mentioned about uh, about failure and I guess we've talked quite a bit about change and actually a lot of people fear change oh yes I guess um I'm really keen, I guess, to to touch on failure as a whole. Your 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 relationship with failure. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that, um, and I guess how you help other organisations, other people that you work with. I, I guess navigate or address their own fears and how they can combat them. Okay, so my early relationship with failure, um, not. Not when I was very small, but as soon as education came mm. into the picture, um, was related to pass or fail. So it was bad exams. Mm. Um, Touch on the education system. Then what? What do you what do you think about the way we still do that now? How archaic it is in that sense? No, Th- there is so much missing in yeah. education yeah, today. Yeah. And the opportunity is greater now in many ways than it's ever been before. Mm. I, I mean, there are so many things that young people need to learn for their futures mm. that are not about passing exams. 
than are not about the constraints of one subject or another. I mean, my 14-year-old grandson has had to choose his GCSEs. I'm sure you've been mm. through this yourself. He doesn't know what he's going to do in his future, just mm. as I didn't yeah. when I was at school. I mean, financial education, relationship building, dealing with limiting beliefs, managing changes. I mean, that's just a few things we could do. Oh, wouldn't... What, what, why, like, why, why? Like, Honestly, you echo everything that I believe in about the education system and how it should be changed. And what, and what, why, why can we not recognise that? Why does the government, why do we, why are we still adamant that this archaic system is going to be our... Because that's what we've bought. We've bought into it. It's all about qualifications, the madness of qualifications. I didn't have any qualifications. I mean, I I had, you know, passed a couple of exams, but I didn't take my A-levels until I was, well, I can't remember now, but I mean, it was quite a bit later. Mm. I'd left school by then. Mm. I went to university when I was in my 30s as a senior, oh, mm. a, um, what, the, what do they call it? Mature student. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't <Yeah>. mature. Um, <laughs> I had a wonderful time. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was... <laughs> I, that, I was being a student full on. Um, and I loved it. Um, and, you know, by then, I'd lived life. Mm -hmm. So the academic part of it, which fascinated me, a lot of it, um, was like a bonus to me. But I'd already got the basics in place. I was a parent. I, in fact, I think I was a single parent at that point. And so... I'd got those experiences, but so many kids today have not. Back to that. I mean, of course they haven't. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. there are some, of course, who've had ghastly experiences. Yeah. It's not that I don't recognise that. But how do you teach life experience? Mm. How, do you, how do you teach people to relate to each other peacefully? How do you teach people to build relationships how do you teach people to sell? How do you teach people to set up a business, to manage their finances, to learn how to budget? Oh, Helen. If you're... I'd learnt all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, look, uh, um, uh, for me, uh, what you've just described is I think we'd build a, a much better society if, we, if our children were... We're in an education system that encourage that, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's completely wrong. There is obviously there's, there's scope to learn a, 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 about maths and obviously English and all those fundamentals. We've got to get some, some element of fundamentals well, yeah, in there, yeah, of course, that. of course. But 100% for me, everything you've mentioned will will, will build a better thriving society mm. as opposed to where what we're, we're still building now I mean there are some improvements in the sense that you, I think um, one gets education today for instance that is multi-religious so you learn about mm. Hinduism and Buddhism and so yeah, on and yeah, so sure. forth, that didn't exist in my day I mean yeah, it was strict, strictly Church of England yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure, sure, sure. in fact we had scripture was, yeah. was, was our class um, so Things have changed. Some things have got better. Mm. 
And I think an awful lot of Scott was. But mm. a few years ago, we bought into this whole everyone has to have a degree mm. in order to get a job. Yeah, and that, yeah. you know, that's a kind of emotional blackmail mm. in a way. What we have now is an overload of degrees and people who don't want the jobs mm. that are on offer. So it, it, it has exploded or imploded, mm. imploded, I think. Yeah. It's gone wrong, hasn't it? Yeah. Because back to again all your points around, if we if we can ask our kids not what well, you need to get a degree because you're going to get this job or not what is it you want to do what what do you enjoy doing what do you love doing what is your purpose yes and what will happen to technical colleges yeah, 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 yeah you know yeah. I mean yeah. why yeah. do we not have technical colleges not everybody wants an academic degree yeah. there are so many talented and skilled people yeah. who could have um, a qualification mm. that is non-academic yeah, and be very, very successful. Yeah. 100%. And it, it divides society and then it causes an unhealthy competition. Mm. Um, anyway. Yeah, no. Well, no, we've done, uh, 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 it's Martha, we've gone right into the education and I get so passionate about it and I know that we've spoken offline and, and spoke quite passionately about it and uh, I'm glad that you... <laughs> You, you, you didn't object with that, so and we were able to share it. But so I'm still keen to just with the fact that like, we, we got onto it, talking about obviously failure and uh, the yes, education sorry. system is yeah. set up by that, mm. and uh, we are you know you pass or you fail an exam. Yeah. So just go on a little. So you come out of the education system, what and over your life now, what your relationship with failure? Okay, so when I came out of formal education, I felt I had failed. Mm. Um, academically uh, and that sat with me for quite some time mm. um, which was why ultimately I did go to university mm. um, and followed that through however I take a very different view of failure these days failure is a gift failure is how we learn failure is an education so to give you an example if you want to learn to ride a bicycle how do you do that you get on and you fall off. <laughs> exactly. You get on and you fall off. Now, falling off in the world of riding a bicycle is, is failure. Mm. But without falling off, you won't succeed in riding a bicycle, probably. Yeah. You've got to find your balance. Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, that, that, that's the kind of thing I'm Fa talking about. Failure is a gift. I love that for me. And mistakes, you know, same thing. Mistakes mm. are a gift. Because if we reframe, because we're still, because I guess because of the way education is, because uh, we're programmed as a society and as a, especially in our childhoods, that actually mm. if you do that, you're going to fail and mm -hmm. you're seen as a failure. The narrative around failure mm -hmm. is that it's a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. Whereas reframing it like that, that failure is a gift. Because I'm 100% I'm about that. And I say to my kids most days, what did you fail at today? Because I want them to be... God only knows I've failed many many times and I'll continue to do it every day but we do we it's the biggest learning isn't it it's huge I mean you're a footballer yeah, yeah, yeah exactly but... how did you learn to get the ball into the goal yeah. by missing it yeah, yeah yeah there's that there's that brilliant there's a brilliant Nike uh, advert with Michael Jordan and he where he he does some shit and he says I've I've missed thousands of shots. I've missed um, game-winning shots, and I've I've failed many, many times, and that is why I succeed. 
Like, I loved it. I thought that, mm. and I've, I do believe we can change the narrative in society. That it's not a, that it is a gift. I love that failure is a gift. I think that that is a. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if we take the time just to think about it logically for mm. two minutes, um, electricity. He failed many times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, any scientific breakthrough, yeah. many, many, many failures. Yeah. Um, What's his name? The the Hoover man, the vacuum cleaner man. Dyson. Thank you. Yeah. Thousands and thousands and thousands of prototypes, yeah. literally, yeah. before he found the right one. Yeah. It's a process of education. It's a process of learning. Yeah. It's not failure. Because if we don't fail, we don't arrive at where we're planning yeah. to go. How How can invention occur unless there are some failures? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's where we need to be. And then, we'll look, look as we're as we're coming towards the end, and always finish with our final life in sixty seconds. And um, I'm really keen, as always, to find out the definition of success. <laughs> and I ask everyone. I'm I'm on the mission. I guess to I guess for me to help. I want, to help, I want to help the world to see success differently, that it's not this financial status and that we, we do see it in a different way and a different light. But, we've, I mean, look, we've, I, I need to get you back on for part two because I feel like we've <laughs> even only just scratched the surface with, with your journey and the amazing experiences you've had and um, learnings and it's just been fascinating as I knew it would. But with that, with, with where you've been... Where you are now, where you going still? Where? How do you define it? How do you define success? How do I define, define success? success? Okay, so success is what you say it is. Because my success or my feeling of being successful is not going to be the same of your as mm. yours or based on the same factors. So success is what you say it is. I consider myself to be extremely successful. But if you actually looked through the history, there isn't a lot of money involved. You know, I didn't make millions. I wasn't interested enough to do that. Mm. And yet, I'm hugely successful. So that's one way of looking at it. I think that success can also be defined by contribution. How much have you contributed to others? And that is another definition of success. What difference have you made? And a third element of success for me is integrity. You know, we, we, we sell ourselves short, we sell other people short, we kid ourselves, we're inauthentic. And that's not, to me, that's not success. But integrity, wholeness, that to me is success. I love that. Oh, you've, you mentioned integrity so uh, a lot for our throughout the episode and I guess touching on a few of the points you've just come out of of that around authenticity and what that looks like under integrity because there's still that thing isn't there that the biggest regret of dying is that we we didn't live a life true to ourselves and that surely then I guess comes under the integrity side of absolutely that, that yeah being true to yourself yeah. yes and how many people are to themselves 
and how many people are even aware that they're not being true to themselves. Mm. You know, that, that's, that's the other part of it, and that's kind of scary. And, of course, it can be defined in a number of different ways. I mean, there are positives and negatives of being true mm. to yourself. Yeah. Um, but I think that integrity in the sense of wholeness, health, I see it as, as, as health, well-being. Mm. Mm. I know that's an overworked word these days. But if, if, if we had integrity in the world, we would have peace mm. because we would all authentically relate to each other on a different plane. I mean, integrity to me uh, involves the, the whole of the ikigai philosophy, mm. um, considering what's going on over there before you consider what's going on over here. What can you do about that? How can you contribute to that? Now, that doesn't mean that you don't look after yourself. Because mm. those, you talked about life-work balance. Mm. So life-work balance, is, to my mind, is a couple of things. One, learn to say no. Yeah. And if you're a people pleaser, that's hard. But hard no is a whole sentence, mm. right? Second thing is take responsibility for yourself. Nobody else will. And when I say that, I mean ownership. You have a responsibility to take care of yourself. It isn't somebody else's responsibility. Mm. Because if you don't, you become a liability. So there has to be time in your life when you come first. Mm. There has to be time for you. There has to be time when you heal your wounds, when you take care of yourself, when you give yourself time to breathe. And that's where no comes in, of course. Something for, uh, for me on my journey and where I'm going, that, that's, that's where I, I find my biggest challenge, if I'm being honest. Saying no, I struggle with that because I am a, I'm definitely, I have always been a people pleaser, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the self care element to it, like, I've I mentioned it a couple of times before on on a, on a previous podcast that I listened to one with Jay Shetty um, who mentioned about the the hierarchy of where you should be if you have your family and you just use your kids and I was like well kids first wife I'll be somewhere and it 100% not that you've got to be there above your kids above everyone because if you're looking after yourself you're the best version of yourself for them and I, I still struggle with that. I try, I'm trying to get better. Trying to do things like only last Friday, I, I was meant to be at an event, meant to be going somewhere, and ended up going. I'm not. I just couldn't do it. I just had a really shit couple of weeks, if I'm being honest. And I was like, I just can't be around loads of people and do it. I ended up going to the Buddhist centre and having a half hour guided meditation, and I, it done me the world of good. Yeah. And it's the first time actually I've gone. I've put my needs above what I thought would be more mm. beneficial for my business mm. or more beneficial for me as a grand scheme of things. Mm. But actually, what was more beneficial was just mm. me looking after myself mm. and my health and well-being. Mm. And it's a difficult thing to that get trying to get that. Yeah. So you've still got a limiting belief that is causing you to be concerned about other people, mm. what they think, and pleasing them. People pleasers are stuck between fear of rejection and needing to please mm. and it's a no win place yeah. <laughs> it certainly seems that way yeah 
Interesting. Helen, what what is next for you? Well, mm. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm writing a thriller. Wow. Based on working in Russia, so some of that will be involved. Yeah. Um, I box, and I love it. So more boxing is definitely, <laughs> you know, for me, uh, it's a lifesaver as far as yeah. I'm concerned. Uh, it, it's just been, apart from fitness and strength and balance and so on, um, I find it psychologically, mentally and emotionally yeah. healing and helpful. Um, I run a discussion group called the Wisdom Exchange, which meets once a month. I provide a topic... And the idea is that we delve into the topic and share wisdom about it. And I want to develop those groups Mm. um, and grow that because the feedback I'm getting from people is it's my favourite hour of the month. You know, it's the time when I can forget everything else and just enjoy. Love that. So I want to grow those groups. And beyond that, just give me more work. More companies, more clients, more individuals. I love my work. I don't even consider it work. I want to do loads more. There's time, and we need it. You know, we need the work. We need... Companies need help. Individuals need help. Amazing. Just, I mean, look, I've I've been fortunate enough to, like I say, I guess know you over the the last sort of few years, and, um, and every time we have a conversation, you inspire you educate me you blow me away and you're like sitting opposite you and listening to just your i guess your enthusiasm and love for life and and all the things that you're still doing and want to do and it's just it's it's incredible um really 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 inspiring and and look like I said, we need to get you back on for part two because I feel like we've just scratched the surface with just some amazing insights and takeaways about what people can learn. I, I can't wait to go back and listen to it, actually, and I'm sure the people listening will. So I'm just really, really grateful for your time today. It's been... It's totally my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thank you. And that, as they say, is a wrap. Thank you.